This is Lit Fantastic, a podcast series about authors and their obsessions. I'm your host, Neil Aiken. In this episode, I talk to Brent Fisk, a poet out of Bowling Green, Kentucky, with over 300 poems, essays, and short stories published so far. He and I talk a lot about one of his favorite obsessions and pastimes, basketball. So this particular episode, there are a couple things that are really striking. One is uh, sort of this commiseration between two poets in their in their mid forties, uh, grappling with the changes in our bodies and and sort of how we we turn to different routines or patterns or hobbies to kind of recover um, a sense of our youth, while at the same time discovering the wisdom in the passing of our years. I guess is the polite way to say it. Let's get straight to the interview. As Brent Fisk and I are having this conversation, it should be noted that Brent is in the middle of a major thunderstorm. So if you think you hear thunder in the background, you are. I'd say probably basketball would be my biggest obsession. Uh, you, you grew up in Indiana, you, know, you moved to Kentucky, you could kind of see why you would <laughs> gravitate toward that. But, you know, I'm, I'm in my, my 40s now, you know, I've, I've I'm barely over 5'8". You know, I've never been able to, to dunk a basketball in my life. But it's a game that, even though I pay a physical price to, to play, uh, you know, I still try to play three or four times a week, an hour or two here or there. And, I, you know, I love to watch it. I'm, I'm even watching summer league games. So <laughs> that, that tells you a <laughs> that, little bit. That, that's a level of dedication and obsession, right? Exactly, exactly. I just think it's a really, it's a really beautiful game. You know, I love the fact that, you know, there's there's so much going on in a basketball game. And I think playing the game in particular makes you appreciate the small things, you know, a screen set at the right time or, a, you know, a great defensive effort. So, you know, those are the kind of things that I, I love, that chess match of trying to, you know, to execute uh, better than the people that are trying to stop you. I grew up a couple hours south of French Lick, which is where Larry Bird was born. You know, so I, I started watching in the, in the late '70s, '80s. Uh, you know, as a kid, and I kind of stuck with it. You know, my whole my whole life, and it's still still a big fan. You know, I have I have a couple teams I follow, and I always kind of watch. Uh, you know, I, I like to see what kind of moves they make, and you know, who who they attract, who they bring in. But there's something about playing the game. You know, again, at my age, I have limitations. You know, I, I probably have like a three-inch vertical leap, but I can stick an open jumper. I play hard. And you know it's funny when you go to the gym and you you get involved in a pickup game. You know these are guys that can touch the rim and that you you look at them and you think they're going to just kick the hell out of us. <laughs> and it's it's funny how often it's the old guys with slight paunches and you know crow's feet and stuff. They're the ones that end up beating these guys because they play so much of the game with their head. And yeah. uh, there's something I think even sweeter about beating somebody that should, by all rights, beat you. To, to be able to kind of take that step and make the right passes and, you know, get the open looks and hit, hit the open jump shots. And uh, there's something sweeter about doing that <laughs> at, at 47 mm-hmm. than, say, at 18. And in a lot of ways, I'm a better player now at my age, even with the limitations I have physically, than I was, you know, when I was a much younger man. Uh, you know, just, you just rises. And, uh, you know, you're at your best when those things are kind of at an equilibrium. And, and so that's, that's, that's my obsession, I think. Yeah. I, I mean, in the, the way that over time, 
you know, playing basketball or whatever it is that, that becomes our obsession, we may enter with one particular set of skills and then acquire a different set of skills later on. Um, right. And so I was wondering, like, are there ways in which, you know, your experience and in, in your obsession with basketball has spilled over into other facets of your life or ways that you see it running parallel um, to, to whether it's writing or, or teaching or, or something else? Yeah, I think I think the uh, importance of like drill, you know, rep- repetition. We we don't like that when we're you know in grade school and high school, you know, learning things by rote, and we don't like you know writing the same sentences or doing thirty math problems that are similar to each other, right? Those things bore us. But I think that 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 again, that sort of obsession with the detail, uh, that's the difference between uh, really honing a craft and dabbling and i think that you know when when i was younger and i've always been interested in writing um you know even in grade school just you know little little short stories but i don't think you know for me that i I really took it seriously until well into college you know when i realized i had raw talent but to develop that it was going to take more right i mean i think that a lot of times you have that innate ability and what separates you from, you know, being say a good writer versus a a great writer to take a a good short story and make it a great short story, a good poem, make it a great poem is attention to detail. And a lot of times that's, that's just repetition of reading it aloud, you know, figuring out where the little rough patches are, you know, where the extra words are, what, what's missing from your game, uh, you know, whether it's basketball or writing, you know, I can remember when I was in college, you know, you would, you would come up with an interesting idea for a poem and, you know, you just, you'd love it. You think, oh, this is the best thing I've ever written. And, you know, it, it, it wasn't, it was an interesting idea you didn't amplify or dig deeply enough into, or you got sidetracked by wordplay that was sort of extraneous. And I think that, you know, at some point something happens, you just you read enough work, you read the same poems you like enough that you start to figure out, hey, there's more going on here than the clever idea or the interesting word choice. There's a whole package of things and, and layers that happen. How do I get to that? And I think in some ways that's sort of a competitive nature, right? To want to rise to the level of, of you know, your best, I'm going to say adversary, just you know, to keep with the best sports metaphor, but other writers have, I think, generally have that healthy competition, right? And you know, in the best situations, it's, it's sort of seen as teamwork and it's collegial as well. But I think that that competing with yourself or competing against others, however you want to look at it, you want your work to measure up to that. You want it to be the best thing that you can, you can produce. And, and so, you know, even in writing, you have the drudgery of practice, you know, the the failed poems and uh, the off days. And, and I think getting through that is, is important. I, I was lucky enough to see uh, last month, I saw both Richard Russo and Stephen King. Uh, do R- Russo gave a reading and talked about writing in general, and, and Stephen King just talked about writing. But uh, both of them kind of talked about the, the drudgery of writing and, and how those, you know, King in particular, that the worst days were the ones where you were writing not terrible work, uh, and not great work, but work that was just kind of 
flat on the page and not doing anything. And, and I so got that, <laughs> you know, that there's, there's a, a, a troublesome quality to okay work or good work. You know, it's not so terrible that you want to kick it out and it's not so terrible that you're like, I really got to bear down here. It's, it's passable. It's doing what it's doing, but it's not, it's not what you're, what you've turned out. That's, you know, the best. And, I think that that can get really frustrating because it, it's just like, you know, it's not bad enough that I want to get rid of it. What do I do with it? You know, it's not mm. going anywhere either. And and that's sort of a, one of those eddies you get into. You're like, oh, I don't want to be here. <laughs> you know, if I'm writing terrible work, I can, I can, I can just say, hey, I'm going to leave this and come back to it later when I'm more inspired. But when it's mildly interesting, you know, it's just enough that you want to keep working on it. And sometimes you're just wasting your time with that. Yeah. So... No, I, I have a whole category of uh, poetry. Um, when I'm reading submissions for for Boxcar or when I'm just reading poetry collections in general, there's a category I, I kind of, or a designator, I, I kind of refer to that as competent but not compelling. Mm-hmm. It's like technically everything's there. The poem is, yo, it's well-crafted. Right. But for some reason, I can't quite put my finger on, most of the time, I can't quite identify exactly why. It's just kind of flat. It just doesn't yeah. really sing. And, I, you know, if I were, if I were an instructor, I would, I would kind of struggle a little bit to, to say, this is exactly the reason why this poem is not working. <laughs> but I, I, would, I would basically tell them that, you know, there's... They need to dig deeper and figure out what it is that they're really trying to to get at. Have something to say or a guest to recommend? Perhaps you yourself would like to be a guest on The Lit Fantastic. You can reach us by email at contact at thelitfantastic.com. Or send us a message via Facebook or tag us on Twitter. We'll get back to you. So contact us. We love hearing from our listeners. Now back to our interview. You know, it's interesting to hear you say that as an editor, that, you know, you have trouble putting your finger on why a poem is, isn't successful because, you know, I, I try to send my best work out, but there's always one or two that I'm like, you know, I, I like this poem. I like, I really like, you know, four or five lines, I, I like the clothes, I'm going to send it out. And there's a hardening off that happens for me when I do that. Like, I can put that sucker in the mail or send it, and, and I immediately know I shouldn't have sent that yet. It's not, <laughs> it's not ripe, you know, or maybe it's too ripe. And, you know, I don't know, I don't know what it is about the, like, I can look at somebody else's work and go, you know, these are killer lines, here's where it should really end. Uh, you know, this passage is particularly strong. You know, I, I, I see all that like that. And with my own writing, I cannot do that. Now, if you put it away, like I said, that's one of the interesting things about going back to old computer files and the old paper copies of things I wrote, you know, 10 years ago even, uh, it's, it's instantly clear because it's, it's, even though it's my writing, I haven't laid eyes on it in so long that it's, it's like I'm reading somebody else's work. Mm-hmm. And so it's making revisions so much easier but it, God, it's so hard to put work away that length of time. I mean, you know, particularly when you can send it off to some place and they'll keep it, you know, four or five months. And if they don't take simultaneous submissions, they reject it and you do the same thing. 
uh, you know, it's, it's long, slow, slogging work. And so you want to, you know, you want to generate and revise. You know, you think, well, that's the stuff I have control over. Uh, <laughs> you're lying to yourself. You don't. You know, you, you, uh, you, you hope you write a, a first draft that's got it, whatever it is, and then you can, you can get it to where it, it can go pretty quickly. You know, that's, I think that's the, the difficult thing to do is, is uh, know when to kind of let it breathe for a while. And and then let me take a look at it, you know, a month from now and see, you know, do I still love this this puppy? You know, is it ready to go out? Because you know, you can get you can get good work published, but that good work might have been great if you had worked on it a little bit longer. You know, the other point of time where we we kind of re-encounter this work is when we're assembling manuscripts, book manuscripts. Mm-hmm. So even after the poem's been published, when we get back to it and think about like how does this fit in with the rest of the poems? They're likely to make up this book. We often will will realize things about the poem that we hadn't seen before, even though it already got published somewhere else. And we'll say, right. you know what, this is kind of weak right here, and this is or this is completely extraneous. I don't need this stanza at all, or these parts really should be closer together. So sometimes, you know, the poem continues to evolve, and you know, I I think there's a some sometimes there's a tendency, and I think this often happens with with newer or younger writers to to believe that once the poem is done, it is done. Mm-hmm. But I've since learned that that's usually not the case. Oh yeah, no, <laughs> that no, that no, even that when we're yeah. performing it, right, when we're reading it for a crowd on the fly, we may find ourselves <laughs> consciously or unconsciously modifying parts of the poem. And oh, yeah. I've, I've done that. I've misread a line and then thought that actually sounded better. I think better. you're going to change it that way. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and I, I think that that's actually one of the first things I remember that, that I was like, sh- I think shows signs of growth as a writer. Uh, you know, you have that, that puppy love that you feel for the work you generate. Like, I, I made this. It's beautiful. You know, here, Mom, put it on the fridge. And at some point when you start going, you know, I like this passage, but it didn't belong in this poem. I'm cutting it. You know, maybe you create a fragment you know, like file or something where you, you throw those good lines or something to work their way into something else. But when you start cutting your work, when you actually start, you know, taking things out and not just fixing and copy editing the poem, but saying, okay, this part I need to push on a little bit more. It needs expansion or amplification. And this part needs cutting. It needs, it needs to be shorter. It needs to get where it's going more quickly. I think that, that is one of the major signs that you've taken a step as a writer. No, I, I agree. I think that that's kind of when the critical skills um, is the ability to to look at your own work, not just the work of others, but to look at your own work with that type of honesty and clarity, mm-hmm. and say these are the things that need to change with it, and and to you know be really that perceptive. And I, I right. think you know you know bringing it back to to sort of your original obsession with basketball, I think it's the same thing that happens when we learn a game, right? That. At the, at the beginning, we're, we're just so enamored with the fact that we're playing the game mm-hmm. that we aren't that critical on our own abilities or we overestimate our skill. And, right. and then we find ourselves playing with really talented folk and we kind of come to a realization that they're kind of in a different league than us, literally in a different right. league than us. <laughs> and, and, and so, you know, hopefully what happens is that humility enters in and then we start mm-hmm watching and paying attention to to what happens and thinking about that in terms of our own game. 
that's the miracle of, of doing it right, right? I mean, in basketball, you think about it, right? You've got this basketball that's, you know, you, you know, smallish, but you're taking shots from, you know, 15 to 25 feet away, you know, throwing it through the air and trying to get it through a little metal hoop that's not much bigger around than the basketball itself. And when you have, you know, NBA players that are doing that from, you know, 30 feet out like Steph Curry, flicking the wrist, you know, pulling up and barely glancing at the rim and not hitting the rim at all, mm-hmm. and you're just like, do people not understand how crazy good this person is? And so when you you know when you're able to get it right in in writing, you know, I mean we're all using the same vocabularies, we've all seen the same things out in the world, you know, we've all experienced the same sort of traumas and strifes and things that have made us you know gloriously happy, and for us to be able to as writers pull that together, you know, you think comedians do it the same way, they take things that people recognize and they stand them on their head. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes them art, you know, to, to look at something fresh or, or, you know, to both recognize and be surprised at it at the same time. And I think that that's what's incredibly hard to do at writing. And I think that flatness you talked about that you see in a lot of, of the work you get, it's that they're not taking those good ideas and making the leaps they need to, or, or their leaps are, are so, you know, unbelievable that they, that they kind of throw you out of the work. And so, you know, when somebody gets it right, uh, you know, I, I love the work of, of C.D. Wright, and I love, you know, Dorian Lau, and I love, I hope I said her name right, you know, when they're able to take these, these little domestic things that happen, and, and uh, you know, I think of uh, uh, The Tooth Fairy by her, and I think of um, Tours by C.D. Wright, you know, both of those are about familial abuse, and they, they handle it in such different ways, and, you know, you read these poems over and over again, and you're like, Oh, these things are it's like alchemy. <laughs> how does how do they do that? How do they turn these things into gold? But I love when they do it, you know, and and that's what I hope to be able to do as a writer, you know, to to do that enough that, you know, maybe someday, you know, maybe long after I'm gone that that some of my work will still stand. I I I think we all hope that. And mm-hmm. um which is why I think we keep trying. We keep trying. That's that's clearly why I'm out on the basketball court at 47. You know, mm-hmm. still got those NBA dreams, right? <laughs> wow, our our time's just kind of flown by here. Yeah. Um, I, I'm wondering as we we wrap up, could if you'd be willing to share um, one or two poems? Yeah, um, I picked out uh, two, and uh, I thought I would read one called "Dear Season," and so I'll start with that one. Dear Season. Pause for dramatic effects. Uh, okay, so dramatic, dramatic uh, lightning and thunder there. Deer season. Randall slips acorns beneath his sweater. Says, remind you of Darla Keener? No, I say, your mother. He roughs me down in the wet grass, the big stinking dog of him, and showers me with litter. Apple twigs and hickory shells, a scrap of horsehair tether. In the bed of the truck, Angel and Tina shiver beneath old army blankets. The distant shock of shotgun blast echoes through the foothills. Tina is the quiet one, breath palm-mauled and sour. Black posies ring her ankles. Angel sips her pocket bourbon, pulls her hair up in a ponytail, her startled laugh different from the others. Her face has never settled down. Sorry about that. Her face has never settled down since they found her brother in the river. 
The cold is something we learn to share. We shake it off like pity, like the gaze of the unwanted. We have little else in common. The deer come into our yard at dusk, tails a twitch to nibble the ferment of apples. The clouds drag low, gray as gunpowder. Looking backward down a gravel road, too wet for ghosts to rise from. I see how those soft hours moved like yearlings, timid, jumpy. We catch a scent out among the persimmons, what we'll grow into, crooked, old, and dour. And just for a moment it spooks us like a flash of light, broken, refracted. Then we're running through the sumac scrub and locust, breathless and stirred up, waiting for what hunts us. And then I think the other I'll read is one called Trespassing. Uh, Trespassing. We hike a dry branch of the Ripsaw Creek, kick at the glint of feldspar and sand. My daughter slows in the autumn heat, puffs at a strand of hair. She finds treasure in what nature's discarded, mouse skull, turkey feather, a tattered nest she pokes with a stick. She wrinkles her nose in the persistent light. Rough globes of hedge apples thud from the bodark. We hum to the lullaby of the wind-stirred maple, the rattle of sycamore leaves. My daughter is wandering away into the wilds of adulthood too soon. I cherish the small fingers of wonder she once lost in my beard, her easy breathing curled close to my chest. Now the ruddle and rack of distant cattle intrude. Donkeys stand watchful, ear-splayed and dumb. I lift her over the fur-barbed fence, and we parse the path through the haphazard dung and head home. In the grapevines, the warning of titmice and wrens. Watch where I'm going, my daughter sings, as if there were anything else in the world a father could do. I think we had less interruption there with the weather. <laughs> I I think we're the this is the first uh, first interview I've done with actual lightning and thunder. Um, yeah. It's yeah, it got a little little hairy there for a while. So yeah, there it is I again. Don't know that, that that first one might have been boogered up a little with it, but uh, well, it's okay. It's okay. okay. It'll be memorable. Um, yes. <laughs> God approves or or not. Yeah. <laughs> sure which. Well, at least he's busy accentuating the parts he likes. Um, exactly, exactly. Pay attention to this line, right? So. Right. Well, I appreciate it, Neil. It's been fun. That was Brent Fist, poet and apparently lightning rod, as well as storm enthusiast. For more information about Brent, you can find him, or actually his work, almost everywhere online with over 300 poems published. You've been listening to The Lit Fantastic, a production of KBOO Community Radio in Portland, Oregon. Special thanks to freemusicarchive.org and to our producer, Jenna Yokoyama. To find out more, check out our website at www.thelitfantastic.com. Until next podcast, I'm your host, Neil Aiken. Thanks for listening.